if he would have told me when I talked to him, look, I had sex with her that night, she spent the night, and then we fell asleep, and then we woke up and I had sex with her again in the morning, I would have closed this case that day. Is that by saying that, by saying, by blaming it on the jury pool, you're essentially saying, we're not going to stop sexual assault, period. I mean, by taking that tag, they're essentially saying to perpetrators everywhere, you are free to rape because we think it's pretty hard to prove these cases. Was it a criminal sexual assault? No. Is he guilty of being, you know, less than a gentleman? Absolutely. Who in the hell is writing their opinion in a report, but I'm hoping it's not our agency. I am the founder for We Are The Evidence. I was sexually assaulted in 2015, my freshman year of college. After my assault, I did not report for three years, um, partially due to the reactions of the people I disclosed to. And it wasn't until three years after my assault that I met someone who posed it as an option to report my assault. I know this section here is supposed to be about the reporting experience, but I don't have one. But I also think my experience in not reporting and why I did it is just as important to be talked about. So I didn't report not because I made the choice not to report, but to be quite frank, I didn't think what I had gone through was actually even reportable. Um, I didn't consider or acknowledge what happened to be sexual assault. I didn't acknowledge it the day after when I woke up in the morning and I remember trying to recollect all of my memories. Not when I silently walked to the pharmacy, picked up plan B for the first time in my life. Not the day that I finally shared what happened out loud months later. And I couldn't really understand why I was having so much anxiety and distress doing so. And then that's when I realized that I had completely and somehow managed to push, push this memory entirely out of my brain. Just forgotten. Until I finally said it out loud. I believe that it was my own fault that I got so intoxicated at the club night, the night that this happened. I thought it was my own fault I couldn't walk, my own fault that I ended up in someone's car, barely conscious and about to be penetrated. So to me, reporting just wasn't an option because I was in, in denial. And even if it was an option and I wasn't in denial, who was I going to report if I thought it was my own fault? The two women you just heard from shared their stories about delayed reporting or not reporting at all. So many people don't understand why this isn't reported or why so many people delay reporting, and these women explain it so well. The first woman, the founder of We Are The Evidence, said that the reactions she got from the people she first disclosed to were partially to blame, which is incredibly common, and we'll be talking about that more in this episode. We'll also talk about why it's so important to receive a positive response when you disclose to someone and what a positive response is. We'll also talk about why negative responses are so harmful and why that harm is compounded by the more and the more that you get. Vanessa talked about self-blame and denial, and denial because of self-blame. So many of the professionals I've spoken to for this podcast have talked about this common response. There is so much stigma and shame around sexual assault that leads survivors to blame themselves for the violent actions of their perpetrators. How can you immediately recognize that you were raped if you don't consider it to be rape because the messaging that we've grown up with in our society tells you to blame yourself? So many victims report being asked what they were wearing, if they were drinking, how much they were drinking, who they were with, and what did they expect. So when it happens to you, you might internalize that messaging. You might ask yourself what you did for this to happen, and you might believe that it's your fault. If there was one thing that I wish I could change, it would be that victims of rape could put their shame on the person who raped them. To believe otherwise creates a weight that is impossible to carry. The reasons for not reporting and delayed reporting have been studied. Research has shown that the most common barriers to reporting are shame, guilt, denial, embarrassment, not wanting anyone in your life to know, a loss of confidentiality, and the fear of not being believed. This is the same in study after study. 
Other reasons for not reporting include the belief that law enforcement can't or won't do anything, the belief that it's a personal matter, and having a fear of retaliation. Every single one of these is legitimate, valid, and justified as a concern. On top of that, days can go by where you also might just feel shocked, dazed, confused. In that kind of condition, experiencing acute trauma response, knowing what to do when no one else except the rapist knows what happened to you can be nearly impossible. When I was raped, I was firmly against the idea of reporting. I knew it would be awful. I fit the category of the person who didn't think I would be believed, who didn't believe law enforcement would care or do anything, who knew that the person who raped me had a position of power over me and who feared being retaliated against and losing everything in the path I had created in my life to that point. In this episode, we're going to be covering victim blaming and patrol response, who you tell first and who you tell first if you do decide that you're going to be involved in the criminal process. Who would you tell first if you were sexually assaulted? Studies show that very few people first contact the police most tell a friend. What if that person that you first told brushed it off, minimized your experience, or worse, didn't believe you, made you feel like it was your fault? Would you consider telling anyone else? Would you still consider calling the police? Several studies have been done on who survivors first disclose to and how it affects them long and short term, as well as how it impacts their likelihood to report to police and to stay involved in the criminal reporting process. We know that even reporting to the police in the first place is unlikely, like 77% unlikely. For those 23% who do report, that first contact with law enforcement is incredibly important, whether or not it's the first person that they tell in their life, period, or just their first interaction with the criminal system. Whether you have a positive reaction or not from the first person you tell impacts you forever. It determines the likelihood that you'll face negative health consequences, experience less than healthy coping mechanisms, and can change the whole way that you walk through the world before this harm is done to you and afterwards. And first, I think it's important to understand what exactly is meant by first contact with police and who exactly is responding to that call. So there's a couple different ways that this can happen. The bottom line is that essentially a patrol officer is going to show up on scene. That first person you're likely to have contact with is not going to be a detective who specializes in sexual assault if one exists in your community to begin with. Even if your first place of contact is a hospital to go get forensic testing done, it may be the protocol, as it was in my situation, that the people at the hospital, because there was a violent crime, have to report and are mandated to call a patrol officer who will then show up. There are best practices out there about this, especially for those who go to a hospital for forensic testing, but the protocol still varies from place to place, so in this episode I'm not going to get into that too much. The takeaway from this, or the bottom line, is that the first person that you're going to have contact with from the criminal system is very likely going to be a patrol officer, not a detective. This distinction is incredibly important for several reasons. I mentioned a few horror stories and there are certainly many more about the first response that victims get when they're reporting sexual assault to a patrol officer. And according to many of the people that I interviewed, that has a lot to do with the mentality that patrol officers need to have in order to survive day to day in the job that they do. Justin Boardman, the detective from episode one, is back to explain that just a little bit more. Our officers on scene, they haven't been trained in this. So we don't go to, contrary to a lot of people's belief, we don't go to work every day to do a bad job. We go to a good good job. Um, Some of the police force, a lot of them, got into it because they wanted to go arrest bad guys and chase cars and do big drug investigations and homicides and things like that. Um, They didn't get into it for the type of feelings and experiences that you have when you are investigating domestic violence and um, sexual assault. He talked about how officers who initially go through the academy receive training on things like driving techniques, officer safety, things like that. Things that mostly focus on dealing with criminals. Little attention, if any, is paid to how to handle speaking with a victim. Never even mind dealing with a victim of sexual assault. 
And I can understand that it would be very uncomfortable for a patrol officer with no training to all of a sudden have to switch the gears and talk to a victim about such an intimate thing that nobody's really comfortable talking about with a perfect stranger. What I do not understand is why the victim is met oftentimes with such hostility or indifference when clearly they're in trauma and in pain. I spoke with a victim advocate out of San Francisco who helped me clear up that disparity in my mind, and it started to make a little bit more sense, even though there's still obviously a lot of work to be done to solve this problem. My name is Giles Feinberg. I'm a victim advocate at the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. I asked him what they were doing differently in San Francisco, things that he thinks were working better than anywhere else in the country, and he started to tell me about different interviewing techniques that officers were using. He was essentially referring to trauma-informed interviewing techniques, treating people like people. And I made some kind of comment about how it's a little bit sad that the cutting edge is essentially treating people like people when you interview them and that that should be something that should be simple but he had a little bit more to say about that and it was really eye-opening and honestly in practice it, it can be simple to do this however uh, there's a really great book called um, the emotional survival for law enforcement which basically outlines that by the time you have by the time you're up to rotate from patrol, which is about five, six years, um, you've seen and done things that you, you, you like can't even really share with your own family. Uh, unimaginable things. And then going on to the next thing. And what this book outlines is that police officers are, uh, as a, as a um, side effect of that, are hypervigilant. They, they observe the world um, and, and perceive things very quickly, uh, constantly looking at somebody's hands, always evaluating things from a threat-based perspective because, you know, legitimately, they don't know, um, and it's true, if they're going to get killed today. Um, and there is an inverted side to that, which does lead some law enforcement officers down a path of... Um, inhumanity if they don't know how to deal with it uh they have they, they start to also as a side effect see it spill over into their personal lives and um and so when somebody comes from patrol into investigation and they may have this this mentality this hypervigilant sort of state um it's not effective because you are not um your life is not in danger when you're interviewing a victim, but you inadvertently may treat them as if they were a suspect on the street because that's what you've been doing for all these years. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some aspects to that, that uh, otherwise are not readily apparent to folks who don't interact with police officers constantly, or, you know, I mean, even if you pick up this book, some of it will make sense. The book that he's referring to is called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, A Guide for Officers and Their Families by Kevin M. Gilmartin, in case you'd like to learn a little bit more. The day-to-day -day job duties of patrol officers are to prevent crime by keeping an eye on things, providing rapid response to a crime scene, which could be to a scene with an active threat, and performing initial levels of criminal investigation. I was told that safety is their primary concern and they deal with a lot of unsafe situations. That reality, paired with a lack of training in speaking to victims of rape, make it more understandable that they wouldn't necessarily know how or want to respond to a call on sexual assault. For example, think back to the last time you got pulled over while driving. I was in Utah visiting national parks with my mom, and we basically got pulled over in the middle of the day for having a headlight out. But we were nervous because the officer was asking a lot of questions. It felt like we were being grilled about where we were going and what we were doing, and we didn't even know why we had been pulled over yet. This is quite possibly the least important thing to be pulled over for in terms of public safety in the middle of the day, and we still felt like we were being a little bit interrogated. As a patrol officer, though, if you're used to interrogating people on scene, used to trying to find out if you're dealing with an impaired driver, used to people lying to you about where they've been or where they're going, 
Used to responding to a scene and questioning suspects of crime who could potentially become a violent threat at any second, and that's the majority of your job? Then it makes sense that you see the world and the people in it through a different, kind of terrifying lens. This perspective could easily impair an officer's ability to understand that a sexual assault victim isn't lying and isn't a threat. And it also makes sense why so many victims of rape feel like they were interrogated and treated like a criminal at first response. Luckily, there are solutions to this problem for those who are willing and open to learning them. So with basic concerns about safety and an expectation that the people you interact with may be lying to you, some of the issue with first response starts to make sense. However, there's a lot more to it. It also has to do with a lack of understanding to various reactions of trauma. Not every rape victim is going to make a report in tears. Some are in a state of shock, some come across flat and unaffected, some might laugh or have paradoxical responses. All of this has been explained by common reactions by traumatic events as we gain a better understanding of trauma response thanks to studies about the neurobiology of trauma. But are patrol officers trained to understand this as well? Justin Boardman explains why understanding trauma is so important when dealing with response to sexual assault. We have counterintuitive sort of things. So that is the way that we present when we've been traumatized. So some people handle trauma different ways, but sometimes there's gaps of memories, there's there's things like that. People would think that they would fight back if they were sexually assaulted or raped. And in most cases, that's not how our brain reacts. So to save us, and it's counterintuitive. So we don't understand. We put ourselves in that spot in our head and said, oh, I would have fought back, not necessarily. So we start doubting um, when somebody discloses to us. Given that this question of why didn't you fight back is such a common form of victim blaming that we hear, I decided to speak with a licensed professional counselor, Dwayne Bowers, who explains this so beautifully and why freeze is such a typical response instead of fight or flight. A lot of people know about uh, fight or flight but a lot of people don't know that there's actually three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. Um, there's actually some research now that's saying there's a fourth response, which is more of a, um, I'm not gonna use the right word because I can't call it to mind right now, but it's more of a succumb. In other words, it's more of a, um, when your brain says it's in your best interest to go along with the situation to stay alive, that becomes the fourth response. There's a lot of controversy about whether that is a, a cognizant response or whether that is actually an instinctual response. So I, I just wanted to put that out there that um, there, there is some research now being done on there is the possibility of this fourth response. And it, it's kind of hard to measure whether that is uh, the same kind of response as a fight, flight, freeze, which is instinctual, or whether it's more con cognizant, whether the brain, whether you think through that. So just wanted to mention that. He went on to explain that the amygdala is constantly scanning for threats, and when it finds one, different parts of the brain trigger to release the hormone cortisol. Whatever the intensity of the threat is, that's the amount of cortisol that gets released into the system. Cortisol is often thought of as a stress hormone. Uh, it's also known as the aging hormone. It's just not a good guy no matter how you look at it. <laughs> you know, so, um, so what happens is you flood with, so let's say that the, um, that the intensity of the situation is great. I am being assaulted. So my body will flood with cortisol, my body and brain. The first thing that gets, that, that is the response to that is that the cortisol will shut down my hippocampus or my hippocampi. We have two of these things. And once the hippocampus shuts down, you're pretty much driven completely by instinct. You're running on your survival brain and your normal thought processes aren't working as they normally would. They're shut down. And so the fight, flight, freeze response is entirely instinctual. There is no cognitive response. Um, uh, modulation of it by the, the, the hippocampus. And so cortisol has now flooded the hippocampus and shut it down. And so we go into this, what we know as fight, flight, freeze response. Based on past experiences, your brain then decides for you what you're going to do. If you're going to fight, if you're going to try and flee, or if you're going to freeze. So when does it decide to freeze over fight or flight? 
We go into this freeze mode. I can't run. I can't fight. It, I will be in worse shape if I do. And so I go into freeze. And it's not a conscious choice. The body freezes. The, 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 the cortisol affects the body in such a way that the body goes into freeze mode. So if you are being uh, sexually assaulted and, and the amygdala determines that your assailant is um, more powerful or there's no place to run or whatever, it's very likely you will go into freeze mode. And, a, and the unfortunate thing is many people after the assault, when they're thinking about it and, and looking back on it, they, they beat themselves up for having done that. They, you know, I should have done something. I should have fought back. I should have run. I don't know why. I just laid there. I just froze. Yes. And that's probably what kept you alive because had you fought back, this guy might have killed you or this predator may have killed you. If, if you had tried to run, um, the situation may have been worse. So your, your brain made the better, your amygdala made the best assessment possible in the moment based on experience that you have had before as to what was the best response and it determined that freeze was the best response. And so like Justin Boardman was saying, so many people don't understand that freeze is a totally normal response that a victim can't even control. And yet it's something that's used to blame them for their own assault, to blame them for not doing something about it while it was happening, when literally they had no control over it at all. And probably the cruelest part about it is that this response can make it seem, if a defense attorney chooses to paint it this way, that the person may have even wanted it because they didn't do anything to stop it. This is some high-level victim blaming that not only do other people use to blame the victim, not only do people in the system use to blame the victim, but oftentimes victims don't understand what was happening and sadly it can be used to blame themselves. And we know that the more a victim blames themselves, the less likely they are to report it. That's just a little bit from Dwayne Bowers, who we will be hearing more from in future episodes, especially about the neurobiology of trauma and how it affects victims of sexual assault. But for now, we're going to go back to Justin Boardman and other ways that we continue to blame the victim. We will go, what do you expect was going to happen? You got drunk and you passed out on the sofa, right? We go right to... Um, protecting the suspects. Um, well, what, I mean, you should have expected to wake up with a hangover, not being sexually assaulted. He describes that although traumatic response explains it all, a rape victim is blamed for the crime, for what they did or didn't do during the crime, and then he goes on to explain how they're blamed for their actions afterwards, too. Now go to who is this person going to disclose to first? Well, now in the media, they see all these things not being prosecuted. They're not seeing um, any support to the word alleged, all those sort of things. Most of the time, they're going to tell a friend. And then that friend is going to give them advice based on their biases. He uses the term biases to describe this a lot, but I just want to take a second to point out that these are based on very real experiences. They're not just pulled out of thin air. And what they've heard. And people have been put through hell mm -hmm. um maybe it's been maybe the friend's been through something similar already mm -hmm. and had bad experiences totally understand um and so a lot of times people will um delay report and that can be counterintuitive to what the jury pool thinks they would do well somebody raped me i'm totally going to go to the police department right then and there well, no, not necessarily. A lot of times people don't understand that they were just sexually assaulted, they were raped um, because of the trauma, because of their backgrounds, what have you. Um, depends on, you know, if you can even recall some of your memory might be gone. So you're still trying to figure this out yourself. Um, so then forensically, it's harder to get any sort of forensic evidence the more that you delay. Um, but it's absolutely normal, but it's counterintuitive to us. He so perfectly lays out every bias against victims and how every single thing they do to try to make sense of what happened and figure out what to do next with this violent crime can seem counterintuitive to an officer, even though the sequence of events actually makes perfect sense to the victim. 
Understanding trauma helped him understand that and change the way he investigated cases. I ended up going to a training with um, that who would be my um, future training partner. Um, and she was an SBU um, prosecutor at that point for about 23 years. Um, and she'd gotten a job as a trainer for the state um, through the attorney general's office through a grant. Um, and she went to a big national conference and sat on the, on the neurobiology of trauma and it freaked her out. She had an open enough mind at that point that she saw these reasons why she was closing these cases and not filing charges was actually evidence of a crime. Um, there's a lot of guilt when you realize that. There certainly was for me. Um, so I sat in her class and I had the same sort of moment going, wait a minute, because I like to get cases filed. It was fun to get the bad guy. Um, but all of a sudden, all the stuff that I was closing and using against my, my uh, survivors is actually evidence that something occurred. So I, I didn't have all my heart and soul in the investigations. Um, so I started training with her, even taking my vacation time, and I wasn't getting paid. She was getting paid because it was her job, but I would go out and assist her when she would go out and train the neurobiology of trauma on my own. Um, and the more that I taught it, the more I learned about it, and the better my cases got. We've covered a lot here so far with the body's response to trauma and the way that victims are blamed for normal responses and trying to figure out what happened to them. But the takeaway for this episode in considering victims interacting with patrol officers for investigations is that patrol officers are very unlikely to be trained in this. Even detectives are currently not likely to be trained in traumatic response, which is a huge disservice to the victim, often leading them to be misunderstood and consequently not believed or taken seriously. The first response a survivor receives is so critical, and given that patrol is likely to be that first response within the criminal system, this gap in understanding and training leaves serious room for improvement. Luckily, End Violence Against Women International started a campaign known as Start by Believing to help to close this gap. Dr. Kim Lonsway explains its origins and why it's so important. So the Start by Believing campaign launched in 2011. Uh, we started working on it um, in a concentrated way in 2010 um, with an initial investment of $5,000, which was a ton of money to us at the time as a new, small, nonprofit organization. Um, but the idea for the campaign is much older than that. Um, the original idea for the campaign was Joanna Shambos. Uh, back when she was uh, working for the San Diego Police Department, actually when she was investigating child abuse cases. And um, one of the things that broke her heart when she did that work um, was that, uh, you know, not just the tragedy that these children are being abused and being sexually abused, um, but that all too often it is the very people they should turn to um, for help who don't believe them. So, you know, case after case of, um, you know, the, say the mother's boyfriend sexually abusing the child, and the mother doesn't believe the child takes the side of the, of the boyfriend over the child. Um, and and those, that's devastating. Um, and so that, coming out of those experiences, um, Joanne had an idea, a vision for a, for a public awareness campaign. Um, and at the time, and this is the 1980s, um, so this idea has been around a while in her head, uh, that, uh, you know, that we would have, uh, she, she initially thought of it as we believe you, you know, and, and thinking of it in terms of children. Then when she started working adolescent and adult cases of sexual assault, um, she thought it would be different. Um, but in fact, if anything, it's more pronounced um, in terms of when an adolescent, especially an adolescent, um, an adult uh, says, you know, those words that I was sexually assaulted, I was raped, um, how often the very people they turn to don't believe them. Um, and we know from the research, and this is um, as we started working on the campaign, we started looking into the research to make sure if we were going to do this, and this was going to be our one campaign, <laughs> we were going to do it based on what we knew from the research and what we wanted in terms of actual change in the world. So the research is very clear that when someone discloses sexual assault to someone else, uh, that moment is a critical juncture in that person's healing. Um, if someone says to their mother, or their roommate, their husband, their neighbor, whoever it is, you know, I, I was raped, I was sexually assaulted, 
and that person responds either, you know, are you sure that's what happened? I, how could he? He's such a nice guy. You know, anything that's I don't believe you or, you know, I don't want to hear this um, or are you sure that's what happened or if it did happen, it's your fault. You know, those doubting and blaming responses. Those are damaging um, to victims over and above the sexual assault. The research shows that there's a, you can track the amount of harm that the sexual assault uh, does to a person. And if they get that kind of response to a disclosure, it does an additional measurable harm. Um, and that increases the more of those they receive. So if they get you know, four responses like that, um, it is doing more and more harm uh, over the long term. Um, and not surprisingly, as they get those responses, they are less likely than to tell anyone else. You know, if I, if I tell my mom and that's how she responds, how likely am I to go to a nurse or a cop or an advocate? Um, so that's what we're trying to avoid, that harm and that shutting down of help-seeking help and reporting. So on the flip side, you know, we're with our Start by Believing campaign, we're targeting that moment. We're trying to prepare that professional or that loved one to not respond immediately out of doubt or blame, um, but just to respond out of the initial assumption that what they're saying is true. You know, it, it's, it's a very, very simple idea. And, and that was designed specifically. We wanted a very simple ask so people knew what we were trying to get people to do. <laughs> you know, just in that moment, start by believing. You know, you can make a decision later. You can, you know, whatever. But in that moment, the risk of harm is so great um, that you're better to err on that side of um, taking that at face value in that initial response. It's a simple idea with a simple ask. Understand that, according to the FBI statistics, 95% of the people who are telling you that they were sexually assaulted are telling you the truth and don't do anything that's going to make it worse for them. And this idea has been tremendously successful. You know, eight years later, 2019, uh, that campaign has exploded. Um, we know of about 400 communities um, that are doing some kind of campaign, as well as about 100 internationally. Um, so there's lots and lots and lots of activity out there. Uh, the campaign was growing, and then Me Too came along and, and really helped to fuel that growth. It was the right campaign for the right moment. Um, and so um, we've seen it be enormously successful in terms of reach and communities. People get very excited about it. Um, it's a positive, helpful, constructive thing people can do. You know, when the, when the big system feels too big to change, um, and the problems are too deeply rooted for one person to address, um, it, it, it's really nice to have a campaign that says, here's one incredibly important thing you can do. Um, and it's easy. Um, you just have to make that personal commitment to yourself um, that when somebody I love comes to me, uh, that's how I'm going to respond. There are some ill-informed, fact-averse defense attorneys out there who believe that this campaign biases officers in favor of the victim, which quite honestly is ridiculous. The entire system is biased against the victim and very strongly in favor of the defendant who never has to be interviewed, never has to say anything, never has to explain himself or even prove his innocence. All he has to do is hire someone who can distract from the truth enough to instill doubt. I asked Dr. Lonsway what she would say to anyone who thinks this creates officer bias, referring to the Start by Believing campaign. Start by Believing we see as perfectly aligned with doing a good investigation. Um, because that is, you know, that is the, the, the approach. When a victim reports to law enforcement they've been sexually assaulted, for that officer we think it's perfectly appropriate to start by believing in that moment um, because at that moment they have no other information at all. You know? And doing a good investigation means communicating that to victim. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean I believe you. you know, we don't ever need anybody to say those three words. It's in the attitude of listening and carefully documenting and taking this report seriously. That's what Start by Believing looks like um, for a responding officer. Training and public awareness campaigns are extremely important to bettering the initial response to rape victims, but what's being done to address the biases that make rape victims so disbelieved in the first place? Presumably, the judge from episode one, who overturned a jury conviction because the victim, according to him, was provocative and attention-seeking, is someone who went to law school, is highly educated, and has hopefully read some research on rape statistics at some point in his life, and the extremely low rate of false reports, which has been proven again and again. We also heard about officers who told a victim she had been drinking, so what did she expect? In these instances, which are sickeningly incredibly common responses, training and awareness are not the issue. Fear and safety concerns are not the issue. 
The problem that seems to clearly present itself is that these crimes, which are predominantly committed by men against women, bring out all kinds of gender bias and discrimination. Dr. Spahn from ASU researched these biases, which helped to illustrate the kind of victim that officers would find more believable, and what she found was the blueprint of an allegedly righteous victim. For, for the LA project, we also interviewed more than a hundred um, detectives and district attorneys, and um, it seems clear that the behavior and the character of the victim continue to play a role in both police and prosecutorial decision-making. Um, we heard from um, detectives in particular, uh, they used the term uh, a righteous victim. So one detective said to me, if I have a righteous victim, I'm going to investigate that case thoroughly um, and you know, I will fight for that victim. And then in the next breath, this detective said, but most of my cases aren't like that. Most of my cases are party rapes where victims go to parties, drink too much, and um, you know, end up being sexually assaulted. So, you know, it seems clear that, um, you know, the credibility of the victim, the behavior of the victim before and even after the sexual assault um, continues to play a role in how these cases are handled and whether um, they can be successfully prosecuted. Dr. Spahn and Dr. Catherine Tellis conducted research on policing and prosecuting sexual assault which they later put into a book and released it under the same name, Policing and Prosecuting Sexual Assault Inside the Criminal Justice System. It was released in 2014. Part of the research focused on the perceptions of challenges faced by victims when they report. In that research, one LAPD detective had this to say about patrol officers. This is a direct quote. Patrol officers, instead of treating the rape victim like a victim, center more on disproving her testimony. The victim is traumatized and or she is intoxicated at the time of interview. Their interviewing techniques are not the same as ours. We do not try to disprove her. We just want her story. The patrol officer writes the report and notes all the inconsistencies. That's a pretty strong statement from a detective about how patrol officers treat victims. Detectives Throughout the rest of the research, we're in agreement that one of the biggest challenges victims face is how patrol officers are going to perceive them. This was echoed throughout the research time and again. In noted reports stating that the Christian conservative girl who was drugged and raped actually got her case presented to the county attorney's office, who then turned it down for reasons that are completely unclear, and then noted reports where another girl is drugged and raped, but because someone else claimed that she had used drugs in the past, she wasn't considered credible. And how exactly would the detective know that that person was telling the truth about her drug use? And again, why does that matter? Being on drugs doesn't mean your rape didn't happen and isn't real. In fact, given consent law, it should mean exactly the opposite. The research also goes on to say that participants said that there's no training in report writing, and patrol officers will often completely leave out exactly how and where a victim was raped and other critical details. When you have a detective like the one Dr. Spahn quoted who already admits to working harder for a victim they feel meets a certain threshold of righteousness and credibility, it makes you wonder what happens exactly to victims who, like he said himself, do not commonly fit that perception. From looking at research, from looking at statistics, and from hearing from other survivors about their stories and through other people about survivors that they work with and their stories, it's pretty clear that the answer to this is they're dismissed, they're not taken seriously, and the cases are closed, leaving the rapist to walk free without even having to be interrogated at any point like the victim is. Victim blaming is so common in law and law enforcement that there have been changes in law to prevent this kind of thing from happening and to protect victims throughout the criminal justice process. However, Dr. Spawn noted that this hasn't changed and she wondered why. You know, the rape reform movement in the 19, late 1970s and through the 1980s, uh, feminists and other reformers really believed that if you change the laws and pra practices surrounding rape, that more victims would report, there'd be more arrests and more successful prosecutions and more suspects sent to um, jail or prison. 
and it simply hasn't turned out that way. And you know, the question is why we've changed the laws um, to eliminate the resistance requirement, to eliminate the corroboration requirement. We've changed the definition of rape. We've passed rape shield laws. We've ex eliminated the marital rape exemption, and and yet in the 21st century, we're still talking about, you know, legitimate rape, righteous victims. Um, mm -hmm. You know, again, it, it it does seem that the more things change in terms of laws and practices, the more the outcomes stay the same. I have a theory about why that is. A lot of the reform that she's referring to is stuff that comes up during trial. Rape shield laws they only matter if somebody is going to actually be going through trial. They protect the victim from having to answer questions about their sexual history on the stand. It doesn't stop a patrol officer from asking those invasive questions. It doesn't stop a f detective from doing the same and using it against her. So even though laws have changed that are supposed to protect victims from having to deal with these commonly victim-blaming scenarios that try to push the blame of the crime onto them, things still haven't changed. It just becomes sneakier. It happens earlier in the process. A detective can ask as many invasive questions as they want because they know that the defense attorney's gonna do it. It doesn't matter to them. They don't even stop to consider the fact that it wouldn't be admissible in court and would hopefully, if following the law, would be thrown out and a jury would not even be able to consider it because these things are irrelevant to the crime. But patrol officers, detectives, everybody who comes first, anyone who comes before this case is actually issued, they already have made up their mind about the credibility of the victim, the righteousness of the victim. If the victim is going to be someone that they perceive, a jury will find believable on the stand. So statistics surrounding law enforcement and rape haven't changed because attitudes really haven't changed. The criminal process still allows for blatant bias and discrimination, stigma, and the misplacement of blame to occur at the point of victims' initial contact with patrol and throughout their contact with investigators. And it's not like it hasn't gone unnoticed, but it has been swept under the rug. And this is why it's so important that class action lawsuits like the ones that the Austin lawyers are filing are being brought to light. Jennifer Eklund talks about this and a little bit more about the blame that victims receive throughout the whole entire process from start to finish. It is terribly upsetting that the people charged with seeking justice are essentially because of their own biases about women suggesting that, you know, they, they don't think they can prove the case because the victim isn't believable enough. I also am really bothered by the fact that victims are blamed at every turn. I mean, at the, in the first place, they're blamed in the course of interrogation. You know, what, what were they doing? What were they wearing? Where were, were they? There? How much did you drink? I mean, that, that process is bad enough. Um, but then to be told that their case wasn't severe enough or that they weren't hurt enough or, you know, that they should have fought back more. I mean, so then they get blamed in that process too. Hearing these things is painful, but it's not surprising at all. I spent some time looking through some of the rape reports from 2017 in the local police department that Ira had reported to. Inside many of these reports, judgments were made about the victim's mental health, statements were made about their medication and their past drug use. In multiple instances, the officer would go around the neighborhood or go around to different people who knew the victim and ask what they thought and if even one person said that they weren't so sure or they didn't really have a positive opinion about that person, it pretty much seemed like the case was closed immediately after that. There were reports where the word raped was literally written in quotation marks by a detective and there were reports where terms like drugged were also used in quotation marks. If that doesn't display clear disbelief, right in the report, I'm not really sure what does. There were even reports where the patrol officer knew that what they were doing was completely irrelevant to the investigation, but they put it in the report anyway. For example, there was one patrol officer who was responding to a call about a sexual assault, and he said that while he was looking through the victim's iPad, she kept receiving messages from men saying things like, hey, sounds pretty much to me like anybody's DMs who's under the age of 50. 
but he went on to infer that she was likely a prostitute, and then a follow-up with a detective. The detective literally asked her if she was a prostitute. Again, anything like that would be protected by rape shield law, so why are detectives asking about this? And more importantly, why are they putting it in publicly available reports? And to top it all off, that particular case was closed for two reasons. One of them was being pending new information, and the other was the suspect's perceived refusal to participate in the investigation. So essentially, if you're a suspect and you're accused of rape and you'd rather not be, all you have to do is apparently say so. Case closed. And again, this begs the question, are women wrong for thinking that they were the ones investigated instead of the criminal? I don't think so. I asked Kim Lonsway for her perspective on why so many reports are not fully investigated, why so many things fall through the cracks, and she had a lot to say that really wraps up everything that we've talked about so far, plus a little bit of additional information like time constraints, administrative pressures, things like that. So given that our society has these deep-seated notions about sexual assault, um, primary among them being a skepticism uh, that reports are false. So that's, and there's nothing unique about law enforcement. You see that across all the professions. You see that in, in society. You see it from family members. Um, it's absolutely heartbreaking, uh, especially from loved ones when you see someone disclose sexual assault um, and the initial response is not to believe that. So that is sort of the water in which we all swim as a society. So given that that's the case, um, it's not surprising that police officers often share that. Um, and then you combine with that the unique law enforcement role, um, which is uh, that their role is to investigate. Um, their role is um, to not make a decision until they have enough evidence um, and the reality that they're lied to every day. Um, so you, you throw a lot of the, and there's other factors that come into play um, that force them to often, uh, or push them to make a decision too quickly, administrative factors, they're understaffed, they're pushed to the next case. So there's, there's all kinds of factors that flow into why there is a, a, a predisposition or at least a, a tendency um, for law enforcement officers to not believe um, reports of sexual assault. Um, and so when you take all of that soup um, and you have a survivor come and you, or you have someone come in and report that they've been sexually assaulted, um, all too often that decision is made based on that initial report. Um, and so that is you know, typically how a report of sexual assault comes to law enforcement from the victim or from a third party. Um, but so, for example, the person accused isn't the one that brings it. You know, it comes from the victim or a third party related to the victim in some way. Um, so that's the initial information they have. And so when you combine, again, these misconceptions, these ideas about sexual assault that are often 180 degrees wrong, <laughs> um, you know, people sometimes look at the way sexual assault victims behave, and they might be very, very typical dynamics and characteristics, um, and yet people see them as red flags. You know, so for example, the, the fact that most sexual assault victims know the person who, uh, who assaulted them. Um, that is, you know, we know that from research, that that is an absolute truth about sexual assault, that most are committed by people they know, and yet that characteristic is something that can count against survivors, that it's a seed of doubt um, for people. You know, how, are we sure this is a real report, given that they know each other? Um, you know, you could go down the list of so many characteristics, drugs and alcohol, that, can, that they have a continued relationship after the sexual assault, <laughs> that they might even have a sexual relationship after the assault. You can absolutely go down the list of, very common characteristics of sexual assault, and those are exactly the same characteristics that lead people to doubt the legitimacy of the report. Um, it's something I think very unique about sexual assault, that the very characteristics of the crime are the same factors that lead people to doubt the legitimacy of a report. I asked her what could be done about this, what improvements could be made, and she had no shortage of ideas. We as an organization focus on criminal justice training, and particularly training for law enforcement. And so, um, given what I've said already, you know, about that decisions are made too quickly often and too often made on the basis of misconceptions and stereotypes, um, et cetera, our goal in our training programs is to, um, A, communicate the reality of sexual assault, what it actually looks like, um, you know, and, and that those characteristics uh, shouldn't necessarily be seen as red flags. They should be understood as common characteristics of sexual assault. Um, then slowing down the decision-making process at all, um, you know, a determination about the case isn't made at step one. It's made at the final step after the investigation has been done. At least that's the way it should work. 
Research by longtime sexual violence researcher Dr. Campbell found in one study with her colleagues that, and I quote, victims may be better off receiving no support at all than receiving reactions they consider to be hurtful. Victims of rape are at increased risk for anxiety, depression, PTSD, other psychological issues, substance abuse, social isolation, and withdrawal, and so many other harmful outcomes to their well-being, short and long-term, that it's really no wonder so many victims don't report. It's clear that much of law enforcement is currently ill-equipped to handle these reports, especially without causing further harm. Having experienced many of these negative outcomes myself as a direct result of response from law enforcement, I often wonder how different my life would be right now if I had never questioned being raped, never told anyone about it, stuffed what I could remember in a drawer in my mind that I never opened again. When I think about that, a huge part of me feels free. Nothing has happened so far to prove to me that it was worth it. The pain I've been in and continue to experience daily as a result of reporting to law enforcement without even achieving the goal of holding the perpetrator accountable and stopping him from doing it to anyone else has been so destructive. It feels like by reporting, I trap myself inside of a cage that I can't escape. It feels like my soul has been imprisoned and I'm not myself anymore. I know that everyone counts on the victim's silence. The perpetrator certainly does, and then the police expect it. Attorneys ask the victim to live in silence too, because our criminal process allows for defense attorneys to take minor inconsistencies and use them as a tool to get cases thrown out even though they have absolutely nothing to do with the fact that the perpetrator raped someone. Being silenced, ironically, is a huge part of the reporting process. I've chosen to speak out and push as much as I can through the reporting process to try to find some kind of justice that I'm not so sure exists. But if I had known that my own silence, my own true silence, could have spared me the past two years of pain, I probably would have counted on my own silence too. And I did for a while. I didn't report immediately. It took me a few days to make that decision. That was because I did have a sense of how bad it could be, although I had no idea exactly how horrible it would turn into, even worse than I would have imagined. I knew that speaking out would likely be harmful to me, but I had never considered the fact that my own silence could protect me. And what does it matter since not being silent did nothing to protect others in the end anyways? Regardless, the fact remains, the system needs to change. We need to demand more. Victims shouldn't have to so heavily debate in our minds whether warning the community about a rapist is worth it or not. It should never be such a destructive, painful choice and process to subsequently live through. And patrol officers and their leadership can make necessary changes and give survivors a much better response. The takeaway is that we all need to demand it. Next on Surviving Justice, we'll get into Investigations Part 2, Detectives and Their Role in Sexual Assault Investigations. We'll be talking about confrontation calls, which are pure chaos and a disguised form of evidence collection. The way that cases are handled by detectives, what's been harmful, and what needs to be improved. If you have a story you'd like to share, visit survivingjustice.org and follow the page to the contact form. Especially if you've had an experience reporting rape that you'd like to share, just submit an audio file and with your permission, I'll include it in this podcast. Thank you all for listening and thanks again to all who have been so helpful in contributing to and creating this project.